1: Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. It is Wednesday, August 11th. I'm Jack Farley. Fortunately, we are joined by veteran uh, financial journalist Dion Raboan and, of course, the great Peter Buchvar of Bleakly Advisory Group. Today, we are talking about inflation. What else? That is our main story. The latest Consumer Price Index reading came in this morning at 5.4% year over year, a hair over uh, what was expected in from economists.
2: Yeah, I I thought really what was super interesting when I saw this report come out was the reaction of the bond market. You saw a major sell-off in yields, which is investors buying bonds, which is unusual because, you know, we got this print 5.4% on the headline, which normally you'd think would scare bond investors, make them sell, but they did the opposite and bought but then, after you had that immediate knee-jerk reaction, you saw the bond market really just sell back off to almost where things started from. So, super interesting reaction from the bond market here, which is, you know, really the biggest beneficiary or reactionary to inflation readings. Uh, what do you think, Jack?
1: Yeah, well, the healthy inflation reading was enough to halt the rise in the dollar, with the uh, U.S. dollar index, the DSY, falling quickly off of its five-month high this morning, and in the stock market. Uh, equities were led by cyclicals uh, such as you know the energy sector, materials sector. Uh, Peter, uh, it's great to have you on Real Vision on Today of All Days. You have been following inflation for a very long time and have some very well-researched views on this. Dion mentioned the action in the bond market. Before uh, we talk about how today's inflation uh, uh, reading impacted asset markets, can you just give us a broad sense of your reaction to, to today's uh, print and in particular the sectors of the market which were higher or maybe lower than you thought.
3: Well, before I, I get to that, we also had a, a phenomenal ten-year bond auction or note auction today. Uh, that was one of the best I've, I've ever seen. And going back to at least 2003, uh, the demand, the direct and indirect uh, bidders took more of the auction than, than, than I've ever seen. So that that also helped uh, in the latter part of the day. Now within within CPI. Obviously, the headline number was as expected, the core one-tenth less than expected. But there's an important component of CPI that we have yet to see reflect uh, the the reality of a a market, and that's in the rent component. Rents, if you take owner's equivalent rent plus the rent of a primary residence, that's 30% of headline CPI, and it's about 40% of core CPI. So... uh, a variety of different studies, whether it's CoreLogic or Zillow or Apartment List, their national report—they're showing pretty robust uh, rent gains, and that has not yet flowed through into the CPIs. So, for example, uh, the end of July, so a couple weeks ago, Apartment List said that rents, according to their survey and methodology, rose two and a half percent in the month of July from June—not year over year, but for the month, rose two and a half percent. What did the Bureau of Labor Statistics tell us? It told us that rent of a primary resident rose two-tenths on the month, and owner's equivalent rent three-tenths on the month. So you can drive a truck through what is reality and what is the BLS number. Now, I think it's more of a timing and methodology thing, but what it tells you is that these very robust and sharp rental gains that are currently currently happening now are going to flow through into CPI over the coming quarters. So services x energy, which includes rent, rose 2.9% year-over-year. That actually is around where the trend was pre-COVID. So now we're back to that trend, even before we're about to see an acceleration in the rent component. And just to quantify, let's just say instead of 2 tenths, rents actually rose 2.5% on the month, you, know, you could have added a full percentage point to that month-over-month increase in core CPI. So for every used car price someone tells me, oh, yeah, they're, 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 it popped out, uh, I'll tell them that, that rents overwhelm any relief we're going to get on used car prices when looking at you know, the aggregate inflation numbers.
2: Yeah, and Peter, and Peter- oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, jumping on the back of what you were saying, Peter, there's also this Fannie Mae report that came out a little bit earlier this week or late last week, which says that right now rent inflation is about 2%. They're expecting that to jump to about 4.5% in the future. So what we're seeing in these CPI numbers at 5.4%, which let's not forget is 3.5% higher than the Fed's target, Uh, that's not even factoring in the increase in rent inflation that we're about to get. And if you look at what we've seen on the housing market over the past year and a half, how could that not flow through into rental prices, right?
3: Oh, it, it is currently. Uh, here's another uh, anecdote. Uh, invitation Homes, which rents out single-family homes, their rental increases on new leases is up 14% year-over-year. Year. On renewals, it's up 8% year-over-year. Year. So the BLS is not reflecting reality, but it will in, in coming months and quarters. And yeah, maybe we are going to see uh, a deceleration in used car prices because they're only up 42% year-over-year. Um, right. But new car prices were up almost 2% on the month, and they're now rising at north of a 6% year-over-year increase. So yeah, we give, we're going to give some back on used cars. We're going to get some back on new cars. We'll see a drop in lumber, but we got oil back almost to $70. We have a six-year high in natural gas prices. Yeah, we've seen a little dip in copper, but we got ten-year highs in aluminum and tin, and the CRB World Industrials Index is just off its ten-year high. So, and we have container uh, shipping costs that continue to go up, seemingly on a on a on a continuous basis. And if uh, Delta continues to be a problem, particularly in Asia, then you can you're going to screw up supply chains even more. Which, while we may see a, a crimping of demand, you're going to see a further crimping of supply. So this inflation story is not going anywhere.
1: Yeah, Peter, the uh, you know as you know, the core of the inflation story for the first half of this year really centered around a few key sectors that uh, relied on supply bottlenecks, such as used cars, such as airline fares. It's interesting to say. Um, so used cars, as you say, up a huge amount year over year. Monthly, we did, as you as you said, mentioned, um, see a with uh, a pause in that with used car and trucks up only 0.2 percent, not seasonally adjusted. I think seasonally adjusted data actually we could see some deflation again from a uh, very high level. And then in airfare, I believe airfare was down um, something like like five percent month over month. Perhaps that was related to Delta. But to your point, Peter. These airline fare and used cars are a fraction, a very small amount of the CPI, whereas uh, rental uh, shelter in the CPI is something like thirty-two um, so and a half percent. So a somewhat small move in shelter it will result in a huge move in in um, headline CPI. And and to your point, I I don't have the statistics off of my head, but but Dion alluded to it. The uh, the rise in home prices. You know you you have to have the living under a rock to not have noticed it. And that typically leads rental uh, prices by what you know, six months to to to, to uh, twelve months. like first, the house goes up in value and then the rent goes up. And the, you know these private equity companies like like blackstone and and other companies buying these houses, they're buying them so that they can raise rents. They're not buying them so that they can keep rents
3: uh, flat, right right. and and, in auto, uh, used cars were, were sort of flat on the month, but they were up ten percent in June. And airfares, yeah, airfares are just a a, a tiny piece of it. Uh, but on the other hand, hotels, you know, they 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 spiked in July. Hotel prices now maybe they moderate because of of, of Delta, of course. But um, you know, I I you know, hear Jay Powell and 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 others that are in this transitory, and and they they sort of pinpoint, oh yeah, it's just a few things. It's not just a few things. 40% of CPI is goods, which include also energy and food. 40%. Every single good that is made in this world is experiencing price pressures. Every single one. And even if the product itself is not, the cost of shipping it, because we know every single product that's made ends up being shipped somewhere, the cost of shipping has been skyrocketing. So 40% of CPI, every single component, is feeling some sort of cost pressure. It's just a question of how it flows through on, into consumer prices from that you know, initial wholesale price. And then on the mm-hmm. services side, rents are now going to accelerate, which is another 30% of headline CPI. So this, 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 oh, it's only a few things, is a bunch of bull. It's really everywhere. There's a shortage of everything. And it's flowing well through into the surfaces parts of the economy. Now, if you're a law firm, yeah, maybe you're not really feeling it because, OK, the cost of your pencils are, are going up and, and so on. But <laughs> well, swath of this economy, it is widespread. In fact, it's the most widespread inflation pressures since the 1970s. And we are now getting uh, stronger wage increases. But unfortunately- not to the extent that inflation is rising. So we have now, I think, four months in a row of declining real wages, which is a mm. stagflationary type of environment that we are now in that creates a whole different situation, both from an economic standpoint, but certainly from an industrial standpoint.
0: You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N com.
1: Yeah, absolutely. We saw, an, in addition to the CPI, we saw the real average weekly earnings, which year over year came out to negative 0.7%. So, in real terms, inflation in ju- adjusted. The average American uh, worker, the median, I should say, um, their wages are going down. Dion, uh, what do you make of all this?
2: Yeah, I think this is all super interesting. I want to play a little devil's advocate here for you, Peter, so we're not all just, you know, on the same page and agreeing with each other and patting each other on the back. Uh, When I talk to the team transitory folks, some of the economists who have been, you know, pounding the table saying this is all because of these outside factors. It's all because of the shipping delays, the bottlenecks. Um, And these things that are going to resolve themselves. Right. And they look at the report today and they say, look at core CPI. It peaked out in in June, just like we said it would. It's moving down. Uh, We're not seeing the wage price or the wage pressure pushing inflation higher. And that's a key element. So we're not getting that. So we're not really getting inflation. What's your response to those folks who say who point to the report we got today and they say, "See, see, it's transitory. It's it peaked up and now it's going down."
3: Well, I'll say again, you know, anybody who's relying on the rent component of today's CPI, you know, I'm willing to sell you uh, a bridge. Uh, it, it, it's just you're you're not really being uh, foresight uh, with with looking, thinking, or with any foresight if you're going to rely on the rental component. It, as it, it as it is stated, you know, on the good side, yeah, there'll be certain things that are going to write themselves, but it's a matter of timing and it's a matter of to what extent. And I've said on the show before that even if inflation moderates, which it will over time in the next couple of years to a 3% year over year rate, and that we may not see the days of eight or nine tens core month over month CPI numbers. But what, let's just say we get persistent three tenths, four tenths every month, which I think is gonna happen. We are we don't live in a world that is set up and is prepared for three to four percent persistent inflation for the next two years. Mm. So everyone's got their own definition of temporary. So let's just say things normalize by 2023, 2024. But there's a long way from here until there. And I can promise you, over the next year and a half, if we start, if we continue to see three-tenths, four-tenths every single month, and three to four to five percent annualized rates of inflation, well, zero interest rates, negative interest rates, QE doesn't really mesh well with that kind of a world. So I'm not calling for double-digit inflation like the 70s or hyperinflation Mm -hmm. or anything like that. I'm talking about sticky, persistent inflation that is above what people are used to. And a lot of people you talk to, a lot of consumers that are surveyed in a lot of these different uh, confidence numbers, they were either not alive in the 1970s, or they were a kid like me. And they have no idea what sustainable inflation is uh, to a mm-hmm. level north of 1% to 2% where they don't really feel it. So you don't need a high inflation read for a period of time to cause a problem, just a higher inflation read. And- we may get another couple of trillion dollars being spent out of Washington. And even if the Fed starts to taper, we know they're going to be doing it at a snail's pace. So they're just going to continue to, to, to throw more uh, sort of gasoline on this inflation fire that um, I, I just mm. I, I listen to a lot of conference calls. I own stocks. Every single one is talking about how they're dealing with these cost pressures. Are they having right of the ability to pass it on. How are consumers responding? One of the stocks I own that's as boring as can be is Reynolds Consumer Products. They are now implementing their third price increase over the last couple of quarters. Their third. Yeah. Not their first, not their second, but their <laughs> third. And I right. promise you, if consumers continue to absorb it to an extent, it'll be, they'll be implementing their fourth one uh, by the fourth quarter.
2: But wait, Peter, real quick though, just to, to bring it back to something you said, you're thinking that these are going to moderate by 2023, 2024. I think the folks in Team Transitory would say, no, no, this is going to moderate by October, November, end of 2021, into 2022. You disagree?
3: I, I don't see how that's possible, uh, particularly with rents accelerating to five, six, seven percent, which mm. again is not even close to the numbers. So I mentioned, okay, so I mentioned the apartment list stat. So it was up two and a half percent in July from June. From January through July, okay, so not even a full year, it was up 11.4%, 11.4% for the first seven months of this year. Do you know what the BLS number told us today, at least year over year in July, that rent to a primary residence was up 1.9%, okay? So there is a lot of catch-up room, again, in this rental component, and I don't know about you guys, but for me at least, and I think a broad part of the population, housing and shelter is one's biggest cost of living.
1: Yep, Definitely. If you you look at the CPI, it it, it literally is, and people's uh, lives. Uh, Peter, I want to ask you about uh, the fiscal uh, stimulus, I should say the the unemployment um, benefits that have allowed people to uh, receive benefits and not go back to work. They are set to expire uh, in September, across a, a number of states, how do you think that will affect inflation? Because the old thinking is that if you have unemployment that is high, it is very hard to have inflation and when inflation is excuse me when unemployment is very low, then that causes inflation to to increase a lot. Of course that 's been a little bit changed because people are uh, you know being paid and they do to, to not work. Um, but how do you think that will impact uh, in inflation when, when people are going to sort of be forced to go back to work once these programs roll over?
3: Well, hopefully it will alleviate some of the supply issues with labor and that we have 10 million job openings as of June and we can start, and that's more than the number of unemployed. So hopefully we can start refilling uh, a lot of those jobs. So yeah, hopefully we can relieve that, but we're not going back to where we were pre-COVID. You have, People over the age of 65 that have just called it, called it quits, the Dallas Fed has done a lot of work on, on that part of the population. Uh, and by not coming back to work, they're obviously crimping su- supply also. So, yeah, there is going to be some alleviation also coinciding with kids going back to school. So hopefully that will relieve it. But I think there's still no question uh, there's going to be... Uh, a still a strong demand for labor, assuming COVID doesn't destroy us all, uh, that will lead to still elevated wage growth. And um, we have to remember that that we have had like a long time of the portion of the profit pie, the allocation to labor just as of three or four years ago, was the smallest since World War II. and that started to shift. And I think that's going to continue to shift. And whether that's for political reasons, for cost of living reasons, because remember, even though we're going to get more supply of labor, hopefully come September, if people's cost of living continues to rise faster than their wage growth, they're going to go to their employers and they're going to tell them, you got to pay me more because I can't afford to live on this salary. I can't afford to live at at this wage scale. I need more money. And that's what happened in the 1970s. And I think that's going to happen again, even with a pickup in the supply of labor.
1: Peter, I want to ask you something, which is, this is, I believe, the third month in a row when the headline inflation reading was higher than the median expectations of economists. And when that happens in a theoretical world, one would expect, oh, inflation is higher than expected. I don't want to own bonds. I'm going to sell my bonds because they are not they have a you know huge exposure to inflation because they can't raise costs. They, you know the coupon is fixed. They are a fixed income after all. Um but for the third uh, month in a row, Peter, bond yields bonds actually rallied, and bond yields declined as a result. Um as Dion alluded to in the beginning, um uh, we had a you know we have a one point three five to one point three what What do you make of this world?
3: Does that seem strange to you? Well, we we know in the first quarter, we had a major adjustment of rates. Uh, And even today, as of today's close, year to date through uh, August, uh, where we are today, the 10-year has gone from 90 basis points to 133. The five-year has gone from 35 basis points to 80 basis points. So we have had an adjustment. But any bond uh, trader, any bond investor knows What's the, and let's just assume that the Fed follows through on this tapering, whether it starts in October after the September meeting, whether it starts in September because Jay Powell talks about it in August, or it starts in November, or December, whatever. We are now looking at a tapering. What's the playbook since 2010 when QE1 ended? Flatten the curve when QE goes away. Steepen the curve when QE is full on. So I think you have that one component of, okay, Fed's going to taper, let's buy the long end. We have the Delta variant, of course, that is causing concerns about global growth, particularly out of Asia, since they have lower vaccination rates relative to Europe and the U.S. And then, of course, the stagflationary type of environment where people are seeing a moderation in key parts of the economy, in housing, in autos. And so you do have a tug of war between OK, let's buy the long end because growth is going to slow. Let's short the long end because inflation is not moderating anytime soon. And it's this, this back and forth, back and forth. And and then you, of course, throw in the Fed still buying an enormous amount of bonds every single day, mm-hmm. every single month. And you still have the ECB that's being very aggressive in Europe, that's sending uh, the pile of negative yielding securities uh, overseas in Europe and Japan to 16 trillion dollars and it helps to keep a lid on, on the long end of the curve for now.
0: You're a podcast listener and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from lips and ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads
1: Peter, I'm glad you brought up the long end of the curve. What about the short end? I actually um, interviewed a a currency trader and and bond trader named John Floyd, and he spoke about how he saw going long the front end of the curve as an opportunity. I I don't think he shares your inflationary view. Let's take a look at the clip, and then I want to ask you, Peter, and you, Dion, um, what you make of it. What I'm saying is that there's tightening priced into the front end of the U.S. curve. I think that tightening needs to be pushed forward. So there's an opportunity to be long the front end of the yield curve. But the market is still likely to believe that inflation uh, in the future is going to be worse than expected. And the Fed is telling you that we want inflation higher, and we're going to get inflation higher. Uh, and we're not going to tighten until we see that inflation. That, I think, in except the most dire economic circumstances, should keep a floor on the back end of the yield curve, which means that you'll get curves steeper So John sees opportunity in going long the front end of the yield curve, the bills, the notes, not the bonds. Peter, what do you make of that trade opportunity? Do you think it is an opportunity?
3: Well, I don't necessarily think necessarily an opportunity in that you're going to really make money here. I just don't think you're necessarily going to lose money in that part of the curve, because I don't even know if the Fed's going to be able to get away with carrying out a full taper, uh, because there's going to be uh, some, some market adjustments, let's just say, in a nice way uh, as they get deeper into that taper. So, And, and, there, the, and rates will still be at zero. So, even take Robert Kaplan today, who was on CNBC, talked about uh, after he expressed more definitive uh, parameters around his desire to taper, AKA, let's start in October and have it run eight months, which would be 15 billion a month. Then he was asked, well, what does that mean for rate hikes? And he said, one has nothing to do with the other. I'm not even, basically, I'm not even thinking about rate hikes. Let's just focus on the taper. So, I think that. It's going to be really difficult for number one, the Fed to finish the taper without causing a major hissy fit and let alone get around to uh, raising interest rates. And keep in mind, a key part of this too will be who's the next Fed chair. Because if Brainerd is the next Fed chair in February 2022, while she's as dovish as Powell, she's probably even more dovish. So, and probably on, on par with Yellen, who was hiking rates once a year for a couple of years. So to so the question, I think the short end is probably safe, but I don't see it necessarily as a as a big moneymaker.
2: Dion? Yeah, I, I thought what you said, Peter, was was really interesting about the taper. And I think you're spot on. I, I think a lot of folks really are setting up for that taper. And I, I suspect it's going to be a lot like what we saw with the taper when we had the taper tantrum, right? We all remember this back in 2013. Folks who were invested in emerging market assets probably remember it uh, not fondly. They're, they probably have nightmares about it. But let's remember what happened here. Uh, Benjamin Bernanke, um, just, or sorry, Ben Bernanke, who was then Fed chair, just suggested, hey, maybe at some point in the future, we might want to think about tapering. And that set the market on a, on a just downward trajectory and i think we could very well see something like that if fed chair jerome powell comes out and starts talking about this we've seen Raphael bostic atlanta fed president talk about it we've seen barkin talking about it we've seen boston fed president eric rosengren talking about it who we haven't heard talk about it is the chair like i mentioned vice chair richard clarida hasn't said anything definitive about it and quarrels who's the vice chair for supervision, has not said much about it. So we're really waiting on those big names at the Fed to come out and tell us where they are because where they've been all this time is squarely in the camp of we don't need to do anything. I'm very interested, Peter, in your thoughts on Chair Brainerd because you brought it up and it's something that I've been hearing about and writing about since February and March. And a lot of folks have really not wanted to talk about this But I think there are big schisms in the Fed right now. And I think part of that is folks are kind of moving into two camps, and that's Camp Brainerd and Camp Powell. And I'd be really curious what your thoughts are and what you're hearing from other folks in the market about how people feel and what they're thinking about the potential of us moving from Chair Powell to Chair Brainerd, which, if my sources are correct, is all but locked in.
3: Well, what what this is going to come down to is, is Joe Biden going to go with who Elizabeth Warren wants? And that's, of course, Brainerd. Or is he going to rely on his Treasury Secretary, Yellen, who wants Powell? And Mm -hmm. that's what it's going to come down to. Uh, But like you say, the politics have already started. The uh, people in in, in Congress have already staked out their claim. I saw one guy, uh, I forgot who his name was. On, on the Democratic side say if I can have Powell be the chair for life, I would. Uh, <laughs> but then you've got okay. central about bank independence <laughs> Warren that said, uh, you know, it's gotta be Brainerd because they're now using the excuse of 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 the regulatory side. Uh, so it's all about politics, but you know Brainerd's more dovish than Powell, but Powell was pretty, pretty dovish. And not just as Fed chair, but as Fed governor, because he voted for every single QE. He voted for keeping rates at zero for seven years. He vo- voted for raising interest rates six and a half years after the recession ended. So, still talking about two doves here. Uh, but the the, the problem that, that Brainerd has is when we talk about and debate the independence of the Fed, you know, it was 2015 or 16 before the election when she wrote a check to Hillary Clinton. So, um, that that adds to the the politics of uh, of this discussion about who is going to be the next Fed chair.
2: Yeah, I, very, I think politics are definitely a, a part of it. I think the other thing too is Biden is seeing his poll numbers really slide and move in what for him is the wrong direction, and to me that suggests that he's likely to make a move or at least start pointing some fingers because. The real rock weighing him down right now is this inflation story. People go into the store and seeing prices for everything they buy go up, up, up. Maybe he wants to start pointing the finger. Hey, it's that guy Jerome Powell over there who's raising all your prices. And he's, by the way, Donald J. Trump's handpicked Fed chair. Uh, I think that's the problem. Not me and all this money that I'm trying to give to you and your family, right? that's, That's the political side of this, I see.
3: Well, then you, right. And then the Republicans and, and other Democrats that want Palo to stay on, they're going to say, well, you're worried about inflation. You, you, you have brainer take this, this job. You ain't seen nothing yet.
1: Hmm. That's uh, it's very interesting. You, both of you know a lot about the inside baseball of the Federal Reserve. My knowledge sort of with the Fed begins and ends with the dot plot. So it's, it's good to have you here. We do have a lot of questions from the audience, a tremendous amount. Uh, Stephen Moore asks, and I do not believe this is the Stephen Moore who was you know, an economist who <laughs> worked for the past business. Uh, yeah, yes. is gold technically in a bear market now, if yes or no? And does its indirect performance provide a con- confirmatory indication of a deflationary environment in the medium to long term? Peter, what do you think?
3: I do not think that gold is in a bear market. I think it's in a bull market. Uh, perspective, 2020. Silver was up 40 plus percent. Gold was up 25 percent, and obviously have been consolidating that rally. But I think it was just very simple why gold and silver sold off, uh, particularly Friday after the jobs number, and then the puke on Sunday night is okay, the Fed's gonna start tightening. Why should I own the metals? But if we take a step back, Greenspan raised the Fed funds rate from one to five and a quarter in the mid 2000s. And during that time frame, gold almost doubled, gold bottomed, gold's bear market bottomed in December 2015, just as Janet Yellen started raising interest rates for the first time in, in, in a decade. So there isn't some law that says if rates rise, where if the Fed starts to tighten policy, that gold and silver sell off. Look at the 1970s. Rates were rising, long end was rising in yield, and gold and silver had, you know, went, had this incredible bull market. So I am. while I understand why they puked, uh, I do not think at all that this bull market is over. And you can be sure, and I tweeted this out, well, if you believe that the Fed is going to get ahead of this inflation curve, or at least get in line with it, then sell your gold and silver. If you think they are going to slow walk any tightening, and let alone get deep into it, Uh, If you don't think they're going to be able to, then you want to be buying this pullback in gold and silver. And I really think it's as simple as that.
1: Yeah, gold uh, sold off on Sunday after Friday's uh, very uh, dovish uh, jobs report. Peter, you had a great note about that. Unfortunately, we're out of time. We're not going to have uh, time to get it. But let's close on a final question, which is a YouTube question from Ash. That is, of course, Ash Bennington um, uh, of Real Vision uh, fame. Um, He asked, lots of skepticism in the chat around the validity of the CPI methodology. Does the panel think that the CPI is accurately capturing inflation? Why or why not? And welcome, Dion. Um, Peter, you talked about you think that uh, CPI now does not accurately capture rent, but you think it will. Uh, Other than rent, is there a part of CPI that you don't think is accurately capturing inflation?
3: Well, the thing that stands out like a sore thumb is, is how they hedonically adjust uh, for for goods and and the improvements on it, uh, right now we have record high car prices that have gone up dramatically over the past ten years. But if you look at the CPI's measure of it, it's barely up because they're saying, well, you're getting a better car for the same, you know, for even even though you got to pay up a dollar, you're getting more than a dollar's worth of improvements. Even though in order to buy a car, you still have to pay up that extra dollar. So it, it, it's It it, people have no choice if they want to travel to buy a car. Uh, So hedonically adjusting that, I think, is sort of a, a, a false read on what one's actual cost of living is, because that's what this is supposed to be. It's supposed to be a cost of living index that one can compare with how much they earn. And my cost of living goes up, but no one gives me a discount. If I get power windows instead of the roll ups, or if I get a really cool stereo system where I get navigation, no one is giving me a discount. I still have to pay up for that. That is still an increase in my cost of living if I want to get a new car and I still want to drive to work every day. Yeah, and
1: some stereos, uh, s- s- stereos um, may benefit other p- some people, but not necessarily others. So the, making this uh, assumption um, is is that they they are being generous. Um, Dion, I want to close by turning that question to you. What do you think is a part of the CPI that does not accurately capture inflation? Or do you think that the CPI completely captures inflation?
2: No, I think, look, it's about time that we look at COVID-19, the pandemic, as an event that shifted the landscape and has changed everything. And we've really got to relook at CPI now and say, okay, well, how has this changed our habits and how does that need to change what we anticipate people will spend? People are spending more at the grocery store now. Less people are going into the office, more people are working from home. All of those things impact the way we spend our money, what we spend our money on, and how much of it we spend. So it's about time now, I think, we really need to look at the idea of how relevant is core CPI that strips out food and energy. Food and energy right now are are pretty big deals, right? Uh, and that's what the Fed is focused on. And I think that's a thing that we should really take a look at thinking about is how important is that core basket? And maybe it's time to redefine that core basket and redefine CPI overall. I know the Fed looks at CPI every every couple of years and they do an adjustment. I think a big picture adjustment is definitely needed post-COVID-19.
1: A brilliant point. And I might add that the reason there is such a thing as core CPI is they say, oh, well, food and energy, that's volatile. We can't cover that. But uh, right. it's, it's inconsistent, but of course, food and energy have consistently been up. um so you' you're absolutely right to bring that point up. All right, we have run over, but that's always what you what we're gonna do you know when we have a great conversation.' Um, Peter Bookbar, DeAndre Bowen, thank you so much for joining the daily briefing and to everyone watching at home. Thank you so much and have a good night.